If people assume that charities should run on two-string budgets, good luck with that. That charity won't last. It simply won't. The thing I would say to younger charities is also consider using larger, more established charities to actually implement your work. Assalamu alaikum, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Muslim podcast. I am Ibrahim Khan, your host and the co-founder of IFG. And with me, we have a very, very special guest today. You may have actually seen on Islam channel, right? I think that's probably on YouTube. And I always say that's my evil twin. <laughs> <laughs> so mashallah, you studied at SOAS, you did Arabic, sure. at SOAS and management, and which is a fascinating combination, by the way. Yeah, oh, well, people after Islam, I'll give first of all, to you as well, and Jazakallah for having me on. I used to get these comments all the time. So they said, what are you studying? And I said, oh, SOAS. First of all, University of London. Oh, I've heard of that. Right. Okay. Well, Kings, are you Imperial? No, no, I'm at SOAS. What's that? School of Oriental and African Studies. And at that time, Alhamdulillah, it was in the top 10. I don't know where it is now. It was doing well for itself, punching above its weight. What degree have you chosen to Arabic and management? I said, Arabic management? And just start laughing. Oh, there's no such thing. Idara Arabia? Like, there's no such thing. What are you talking about? I said, no, no, it's Arabic and management. I'm going to use it. Yeah, I think that deserved one of those. So yeah, Alhamdulillah, a wonderful journey. Just a small pressure role at Muslim Hands, the director of fundraising. So basically, if we mess up the whole thing, up falls. So no pressure, right? We pray Allah, Allah protects us and gives us tawfiq, inshallah. Prior to that, so did the degree. Alhamdulillah, had the... Where did you grow up? Oh, so I'm originally from Leeds, but I've disguised my accent. Right, right. You got it beaten out of you when you came down. Well, no, I think it's probably my parents decided to put me at a posh school there. So I was at Leeds Ah. Grammar School there. Though I didn't study much grammar, as I found out when I went to study Arabic grammar. My God, I don't understand this at all. And I realized how poor my English grammar was for my secondary education in Leeds and then moved to London. The first year I did Arabic. Certainly those who are considering what degree courses to do. Arabic is a really good one. And my brother advised me and he went to Oxford like yourself. And he advised, he said one of his regrets was, and you walk out of university with an English degree, a good degree, but you miss something for your Islam. So he was the one who strongly advised me at that time choosing my A-levels. And he said, look, you should really consider doing a degree in Arabic. And the plan originally was to go to Oxford, by the way, but they didn't want me. Uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful journey. And I would thoroughly advise people who are considering degrees at university to consider Arabic. And I have to say, however, here, I did my first year and I'll be honest with you, I struggled. I think I was on a 2-2 in, in my first year. I was really finding it hard. One is just being away from home. So I was, Leeds are very different in London, but also it was just really tough. They barely mentioned Islam. I remember mm. even the phrase, Assalamu Alaikum came in our last term. What? All of that. And then it's journalists, Arabic, you know, Zara, Wazir, Wazara, very little to do with Islam. I just fully assumed we may well look at some ayat of uh, Quran and ahadith. Not, none of that. None of that. So I was really struggling after the, the first year. The Mandarin was okay. Arabic I was struggling with. I did, and I was mentioned to you, be very fortunate to do a Rihla program, which was a one month intensive, which comes a Yusuf from America, Havadullah. And uh, that literally changed my degree. Uh, completely around. I went from that low two to to a first, and also wow. when I, when my second year I went to Egypt. What happened to you? <laughs> like, what? You you went from this like average <laughs> student to really excelling. It just clicked, and it was because I found my inspiration again. Why I was studying the Arabic language, which was to deepen my connection with the Quran in the Arabic language, and of course the Ahadith of the Messenger Ali in their pure Arabic rather than through a translation. Yeah, that was a game changer for me. And after the degree, alhamdulillah, I got married. Decided to travel abroad very early in our marriage. My wife is a brave sort, may Allah preserve. I said, there's an opportunity to go study in Mauritania. And many people would have heard of that, Mauritania, through Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and others, who himself was a, a student from there. Some incredible scholars from that area. 
What was confusing is after we got married and where are you going on your honeymoon? Oh, you know, we're going to think about that, but we're going to be traveling abroad to study. And I so said, we're going to Mauritania. Go, oh, Mauritius, that's lovely. That's, that's awesome. That's really great. You're going to be there for a year. That's wonderful. I said, no, we're going to uh, Mauritania. I said, well, where's that? It's in West Africa. Okay. And it's basically the Sahara Desert. Yeah. What? Are you crazy? You're going to take your new bride to Mauritania in the desert and with scorpions and snakes and all sorts. And I said, alhamdulillah, yeah, we, we are going to do that. So, And just to make it even more interesting and more adventurous, we decided, unlike everybody else who flew in, we decided to drive there, four by fours, a couple of caravans coupled in the back and drove our way through mainland Europe, got on a mainland Spain into Gibraltar, then from Gibraltar into North Africa, into Morocco, and then drove down Morocco through the Western Sahara, which still's got landmines. Unfortunately, actually, at that point, we lost our caravans as well. They oh, just, really? Yeah, 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 because you're driving in the desert, and so that it just buckled up. Oh, uh, and no. so that was a bit depressing. I really got a flavour there of loss, because we weren't sure where we'd stay in the Sheikh's village, so mm. we thought, we'll just stay in the caravans, we'll be fine. That was the nearest I ever felt to feeling homeless. I don't know where we'll be staying, and that was a real test. And... Um, then we went into Mauritania. Alhamdulillah, we arrived in the Sheikh's village since past Sheikh Muhammad Salim Adud on the first of Ramadan. And uh, we just had an amazing experience. Half our time was in the village, which is in the Sahara. But then the second half, we actually literally lived in the Sahara in a tent and an amazing time. And actually, it was through Muslim Han's work a few years ago. I was able to go back to Mauritania years later. It's changed quite a bit, honestly, good and bad. For me, it was a real shock to see Wi-Fi in the capital, Nouakchott, and also to see running water. That was a shock. Honestly, that was a shock because you just didn't have that. You had to you use well water. Your electricity were candles. You lived out in a tent. We used gas cannon to cook on. And seeing where it is now, it's like, wow, that's almost a world apart from when I was there 20 years before that. And then after that, alhamdulillah, and I believe it's the power of dua, right? And when you ask dua from the righteous, they, they carry much more weight. And one of my last conversations with the Shaykh was I asked him specifically to make dua that when I return to the West, that I do something which is not just beneficial for me and my family. Whatever that happens to be, I didn't want it to be a selfish perspective that, oh, well, you're all right and you're fine. Forget that everybody else. Mm. It was the opposite. And alhamdulillah, within a couple of phone calls later, when I got back into Leeds, contacted a couple of organizations, and I ended up becoming a secondary teacher for Arabic in in Nottingham. So I uprooted and left Leeds. Even my parents came. That way we closed the gap in the M1 I was the, the head of an Islamic school, the Madrasa Islamia in, in Nottingham. And then about four and a half years into that, Muslim hands came calling, which was on the doorstep from where the school was within less than a mile. And there was a job opportunity to do this. And, you know, at that time, the, the school population was about 150 kids. Allahi, Allah knows that I treated them as my younger brothers and sisters. And it wasn't just I'm your secondary teacher. Far from it. It was they're my younger brothers and sisters. I want to help them in life. Then Muslim hands came calling and said, look, we're part of educating children around the world. I think at that time there were about 10,000 school children. So it was like, oh, wow. Like impact wise and what you can benefit. Yeah, it was just massive. It was just too tempting. And at that time, I think I remember the secondary boys section was just closing. And so that made it easier for me. I'll be honest with you. I was quite attached to the secondary boys. So it it did make my decision easier. So did I. I ended up at Muslim Hansen. And here I am some 15 years later, thoroughly loving the work. Alhamdulillah. And uh, it's a blessing. I know it is. It's a huge blessing in my life to have Muslim Hansen in my life. And the sort of, project work we get to do in this country and, and especially abroad definitely i really enjoyed working with muslim hands obviously we've got the will partnership when i think about islamic charities i think about it you know how efficient are they how well run are they sure. are people sincere that's really important mm. and also do they actually manage the funds well sure. as well do they have like a good finance operation because the charity is at heart 
you know, dealing with a lot of finances. Definitely. Alhamdulillah, I've been really impressed with a few charities and I think Muslim Hands is definitely one of them. You guys are doing, mashallah, really, really good work. And I wanted to hear from you journey you've been on with Muslim Hands mm. and how it has grown over the last 15 or so years that you've been with it and how has the Muslim landscape changed as well? Donor landscape or the Muslim charity landscape Think of yourself as we're doing a documentary, <laughs> going back and it's like a grainy footage somewhere. Yeah, 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 sure. And take me through till the present day when we're going into HD. Yeah, sure. To Muslim, first of all, it was very exciting for me moving from you know Muslim school to a Muslim charity and the effect that had. So the Muslim school was very localized and impacting a city and the Muslims in that city, whilst this was now across the world. And when I joined, it was still since 1993, so I wasn't there at the beginning. But I was aware of it, even when I was at the school, I was aware of Muslim Hands. And actually, I, I very much looked up to Muslim Hands at the school because we were financially struggling on shoestring budgets at the school. And, and I really thought, well, Alhamdulillah, those guys, mashallah, they're very professional. Now that you're bringing my thoughts back, I remember really looking up to Muslim Hands and thinking, mashallah, that's a professional Muslim organization doing wonderful work, setting benchmarks at, at that time. So I was so honored to kind of join. And it was, just, like I said, it was too tempting to, to not having joined we've seen some serious development in the work as well the thing i found i'm very proud of at muslim hands is that our internal systems are very bespoke we've been blessed with uh, different members of staff who've worked with us and so instead of buying off the shelf crm systems or whatever we actually built it ourselves and learned from our mistakes and so it goes back to that hadith of prophet some believers not stung from the same place twice mm. So the, a lot of learning, incremental learning has taken place, all of our systems. And I, I remember even we had a visit with the Charities Commission to look at our systems. And this is now the Charities Commission, who generally is a day of dread. I'm not joking. I remember even, i to use this as the analogy, but you know, we hear about the day of judgment, your eye will be cast down. So I thought, you know, these the regulators have come in and I find myself with my eyes cast down. Alhamdulillah, Allah was very merciful with us. And actually the opposite happened where they said, your systems are second to none. And actually we'd want you to train other charities, Muslim or non-Muslim in the sector about your systems. And that's on the back of some sincere work from staff members that that wasn't just one person. That's a collective organizational learning. And we just kept developing and we continue to do that. So it isn't that we rest on our laurels now and become complacent. And go, Oh yeah, Alhamdulillah, we smashed it far from it. But that was even some, in the, even in the early days, you could see our systems were pretty decent and bespoke then. And I remember people look, what is this? And then the website and other things and how things were being come. There was definitely a moment there and Allah knows best that maybe there was some complacency or we lost our way. And we found that we'd been around since 1993 and we're one of the oldest NGOs that in terms of our fundraising on our reach to donors, it was diminishing. There were new entrants, new people and who unbeknown to us at that time were spending a tremendous amount of money on marketing and advertising, which we just never did. And even now we're quite reluctant to it's something what you said about how you manage the funds. So as being the director of fundraising, I'm very, very wary. I remind myself first and foremost before other people in the team, the money that we invest and it is our investment, the donors zakat and sadaqah is actually from the original amana. So for example, our donation policy is that, that from that one pound that you give, 10% of that is used to generate further funds. That's not dead money or going to admin. That's actually being used for fundraising. So I've often argued with donors, I've said, you know, even on live TV appeals, you know, they ask, and I'll be honest with you, my presenters by my side who aren't from the charity will urge me to say, yeah, it's 100%. And I said, it's not. And I'm not going to tell people it's, on, it's yeah. not 100%. I said, look, 10%. And that's not a bad thing. No, it's, and it's not a bad thing. Yeah, can we stop? Can we get over that? I said, not only is it not a bad thing, it's something extraordinary. I said, 
Me as the director of fundraising, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get a one to 10 return on your investment. So that 10% we've taken from you, we're trying to now make that another 100%. So we've taken that 10 pound from your 100 pound and what we're doing with it, we're now trying to do other appeals. So I said, look, today you might donate to Syria, but on the day of judgment, you might get rewarded for the Rohingya. And you said, well, how? That's impossible. What you don't know is we have multiple appeals on multiple channels, which we're investing in to encourage donors to give. I believe, and Allah is merciful, I believe the donors will benefit from appeals they didn't even donate to through that 10% we use to generate future funds. At the same time, I'm a bit obsessed personally to try to drive that number down. So it doesn't mean we'll always do it at 10%. If we can get it even more efficient, Alhamdulillah, in the last couple of years, we've actually seen that. The irony has been, there was a bit of a quote-unquote existential threat back at the beginning in March last year with, with the coronavirus. Even the government themselves were saying that the charity sector will see a 40% decline in donations. And we're like, wow. if that happens... It wasn't about us as the charity, it was our beneficiaries. I thought, this is the time they're going to need us more than ever before, and now this is the time we're going to say we can't help you? You've got to be joking. And that's kind of, we doubled up our efforts in fundraising and just let rip, so to speak. It was fight or flight. We decided we're going to st- stand and fight. And uh, again, without getting too emotional about it, there's a hadith of the Messenger, which says it all for me. He says, Had poverty been a man, I would have killed him. You know, we talk about fighting poverty. The Prophet mm-hmm. said that 1400 years ago. We take that to heart, that that's what we're after. We're trying to give our fellow man, be they Muslim or non-Muslim in faith, give them a chance. And as the hadith says, that actually we know forms of poverty can actually lead to kufr. They just lose hope. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we're that part of that mechanism that when they raise their hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that Allah uses us to bring aid to them, alhamdulillah. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. So alhamdulillah, Muslim hands has been on quite a journey. We're always constantly trying to improve our systems. People that work with us, generally I find they're quite passionate. And so that can lead to heated arguments as well, by the way, of course. <laughs> but, but that's good in that the people care. That's, that's why it. I don't have an issue. Yeah. They actually, if they didn't care, that there is a discussion. People are passionate about their work. And the other thing is they don't see it as work. This is a passion. It's what we want to do. And yeah. if we get paid for that, subhanAllah. It's like, and I say that to other people. If people genuinely knew the sort of work we do, they would kill us to get our jobs. Honestly, I genuinely believe that. It's just that I think they don't, haven't realized that what sort of work we get involved in. I'm sure it's the same with you, Islamic financial guru as well. And that, and to think, oh, I wish I could do that. Like I could do Islamic work on that scale. It's extraordinary. So Alhamdulillah, over the years, we've seen the project work extend the countries that we're working in and our response to emergencies has improved as well. And uh, it just makes me very proud of being a British Muslim when we carry that flag abroad and say, your Muslim brothers and sisters, as well as non-Muslims, are supporting you in your location at your time of need. So, you know, I think that was brilliant. I learned a lot there as you were talking. And one thing that I picked up there, and I want to kind of double click on it. Okay. I guess practically for younger charities or new people who are doing charities overseas and who are thinking about how can we upskill ourselves, what are the effective strategies and you mentioned one which is a crm which is the customer record management where you store all the information about a donor and and that means it makes it easier to track donations and build a bit of a profile around the customer sure. in our world it's a customer yeah they have valuable. to invest in their systems absolutely i think once we what we've also learned over the years is you've got to invest in your governance as well 
Mm. One thing is, and again, it goes back to our core understanding of amana, of trust, giving them good advice about where to invest. So in the same way, we're trying to invest their sadaqah and zakah, hard-earned sadaqah and zakah in the best possible way, which is beneficial for them in this world, but especially in the next. But one thing they must keep guard of is, is governance as well. You know, there have been cases, no doubt, whether we like it or not, of charities behaving badly. And that affects all of us. It's the baby in the bathwater argument again, that they say, oh, they're all the same. So we've had big mainstream charities behaving badly, and even in the Muslim sector as well, and that has a detrimental effect. So I would urge people that not only do invest in your systems and your people, get the right people in. And again, then people, again, that other thing of, oh, you get paid for this work. My dear brothers and sisters, if you want this work to be good and have ihsan, you need full-time people who are good at what they do. Now, if you're just going to, as it's that whole adage, if you're going to pay peanuts, that's, you are going to get monkeys. And I'm not being trying to be rude, but if people assume that charities should run on two-string budgets, good luck with that. That charity won't last. It simply won't. The thing I would say to younger charities is also consider using larger, more established charities to actually implement your work. Because we have a whole area, and that's actually what I used to do before I became the director of fundraising, that I was the head of major giving. So we have a whole section where if there's a smaller charity that wants to use us to implement the work, we'll do that. That saves a lot of time and money. My goodness me. And so we've had that's been very popular. So instead of them doing it themselves, trying to find their, their stuff and the cost and the travel and all exactly. of this. It's like building three railway lines from Derby to London. And so I think, inshallah, the future is that there'll be more collaboration. It's going to be based on need as well, that actually just simply won't be able to invest in those levels of systems. And we've always said this and advised this to people, always check the Charities Commission website. You can see clear as day how much charities are spending on this and whether they are reputable, have they been around. Whenever there was a quote-unquote an emergency, suddenly charities just sprung up. I would urge people to think carefully and I'm sure you're the same, you know, when you ask, say to people to where they should invest their money. This is also you're investing your money. Be careful where you give your sadaqah and zakat. There's nothing wrong with that. And no doubt we have the principle of husn al-dhan, well of our fellow Muslim brother and sister. But I myself have even been challenged live on TV appeals when we've appealed for, let's say, India Kashmir. And they said, yeah, but you can't do the work there. I said, my dear brothers and sisters, there's no point in me sitting here and putting a rope around my own neck for the day of judgment because we can't do the work. That ayah of Quran, we learned this from our teachers that the, the verse in the Quran, that, Inna an yu, uh, amanati ila ahliha, that indeed Allah commands you to take the amanas to its people the rightly intended for the beneficiaries. That ayah was the only ayah in the whole Quran that was revealed in Jawful Ka'aba, inside the Ka'aba. That's how serious. So I say this to, again, my own colleagues and myself, first and foremost, the funds that we have been entrusted with, as the hadith says, and may Allah protect us from this and everybody engaging in this, that the hadith speaks about how amana on the day can be nadama and khizyun. It can be regret and humiliation. And may Allah protect us from that and keep us sincere. And I'm not claiming we're sincere, but we pray for sincerity. I believe some of the project we do is profound and it's second to none and i've seen that actually over the years said like the journey it's expanded give you an example of this i think one of the things i take these things to my grave i remember i think about 11 12 years ago when i was in the programs department dear brothers he handed over a piece of paper to me in in arabic it was a project proposal for paving stones and toilets at much luxa i said oh okay that's interesting so what do you mean which much luxa i said well Quite a lot of, there are, if you Google it, there's going to be quite a few aqsas around the world. He said, the asli, I mean, the actual original. <laughs> and wallahi, I was in disbelief. I said, can't be. This is the much aqsa. And, you know, I couldn't believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had opened that gateway for us of khair. And we never looked back. So we did that project. We raised money. I remember just talking to a few of our donors and the money just got raised. And that was paving stones, toilet facilities. The PA system, I thought, that was an amazing one. Because yeah. it's happened again just this year. The public announcement system, I remember a solicitor, and he doesn't want to be mentioned, he's from Birmingham, he rang me, and it was £20,000 just for that, the PA system, the new PA system. And he said, I'll make a, make a contribution to that. I said, okay, alhamdulillah, how much would you like to give? Because it's all of it. 
So that's intelligence, man. That is serious. If you have yeah, the money, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's intelligent investment, right? Every time the adhan is called that, the khutbahs, that, and where is it in Masjid al Aqsa, the heart of Sham? I thought that incredible. And ever since we've not looked back, so we continue to do an incredible lighting project now at the Dome of the Rock in the heart of Masjid al Aqsa, our original Qibla. We do these tremendous projects. What's happening in Syria and Yemen is very hurtful. And I've seen it in my own lifetime. When the last six years we've had a crossover where both Syria and Yemen are terribly suffering through civil war. And uh, it's been a huge honor for us to step forward and provide aid to the people of Syria and to the people of Yemen. And I say that because we learned from our own teachers the very beautiful hadith of the Messenger, where he said, Allahumma barakna fi sha'mina, Allahumma barakna fi Yemenina. Oh, Allah blesses in our Sham, our, the Levant area, which includes Syria, yeah. Lebanon, Palestine, and in our Yemen. And it's how he said it. Our sham, our yeah, personalize it, Ali Islam. It's not for me as a British Muslim sat here to say it's got nothing to do with me. You're joking. And it's our responsibility to care for them. So I see opportunity here. And I think there's even a Chinese symbol for misfortune, which if you invert it, it means opportunity. And that's what this is. So where Sham and Yemen in the past were huge bastions of Islam and spread the deen far and wide. We wouldn't be Muslim without the efforts of the people of Yemen and the people of Sham. That's the reality. Check our history, the reality of that. Now, where our predecessors maybe never had the opportunity to give back to the people of Sham and Yemen, in the last six years, Allah has put it on our plate that we can serve the people of Syria and Yemen like never before. And so we're very excited about our project work there. So, for example, we're building homes for Syrian refugees or, or should I say, IDPs, internally displaced people, because kind of where we're at now, because of the journey that we're on, we're trying to upscale our work. And to be clear, and as Allah is my witness, that work has only upscaled because donors gave more. Mm. It isn't because we got so much more clever and intelligent or that we did much better campaigns. Or It's the level of trust we massively humbled, especially in the last two years, by the level of trust from our donors and those who are interested in our work to see what we're actually up to. The levels of support have been outstanding. We're building 600 homes for Syrians. And again, somebody may say, well, why are you doing that? Let them go home. To what? And you know, as a Muslim, I have to draw a line. It's enough. They can't continue to live in tents. It's yeah. enough. Stop putting band-aids on the problem. We've got flowing wounds. So take Yemen as an example. You've got 20.5 million people who don't access. I'm trying to cut, cut, check my emotion a bit. Don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. Are we going to do something? And especially yeah. when, and for me, I took this hadith really to heart. And it's in Sahih Muslim. Somebody said, oh, where do you get this hadith from? The Prophet ﷺ, إِنِّي لَا بِعُقْرِ حَوْضِي أَضُوذُ النَّاسَ لِأَهْلَ الْيَمَنِ he says, that on the day of judgment, you will find me at my water, blessed water basin. And I will be holding back people from my ummah to the people of Yemen drink first. I will hold them with my staff. This is the Nabi Rahmah speaking now. The Prophet of Mercy speaking. And he's saying, I will hold people back with my staff till the people of Yemen drink first. And now... The people of Yemen do not have water. What That should really prick something in our conscience, exactly. Islamic yeah. conscience. I don't care where, which Muslim you are and where you are in the world. That's unacceptable. So where, alhamdulillah, again, it's because of the donor's support, we are taking on some serious, ambitious infrastructure water projects. So yes, we dig water wells like everybody else. But where it's really become different is that we are now upgrading the entire water systems of cities in Yemen. Allah so I'll give you an example. And it's from Allah. And I'm not claiming nothing. It's nothing. It's Allah. That your father in Allah, that in Aden, for example, a city which has 1.7 million people, inshallah, by the end of this year, they will have an upgraded water system because Muslim hands donors decide they're going to do something about it. The same thing is now happening in the north in Ma'rib. It's a city dear to all of our hearts. Why? This is where the Queen of Sheba actually is from, Bilqis, Ma'rib. Is, so this is linked to our tradition. And this is the origin of the Ansar of Medina Manawara. The actual Ansar of Medina Manawara are actually migrants from, refugees from Yemen that settled in Medina Manawara. And imagine Islam without the Ansar. 
What yeah. Islam will we have yeah. without the Ansar? Yeah. They're the ones who stood up Badr. For us, it's showing gratitude, giving back to people, knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with levels of wealth. And whether we like it or not, we're probably in the top 5% of the world's population in terms of wealth. Even sat here as just, maybe even somebody on benefits is still doing a lot better yeah. than people around the world. And it's now about taking that amana and making that work in a very effective manner. But we ask for Allah for Kabul. Because we get involved in some incredible project work, but we ask Allah for Kabul. And we learned that Ameen. from Ibrahim Rasam and Ismail Islam, right? They build the walls of the Kaaba and then ask Allah for Kabul. That's it. That's it. No, Jazakallah khair, Ustaz Yathrab. I think we're going to have to get you on on another podcast. We've run out of time, sadly, on this one, but let's definitely you know, arrange something in Inshallah. the future. And be a, I want to double tap on a whole bunch of things. With that, let us wrap up and uh, I encourage you, um, you know, check out the work that Muslim Hands does. They're doing incredible work and um, follow Ustad Yathrab as well. Um, if, if he's available on social media or Muslim Hands, Just is definitely Muslim Hands is, a, good. is available on social media. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.